Hey y'all, Tasha here. And before we jump into our regularly scheduled episode, I thought I'd tell you that I had a very good reason for missing last week. Now, I don't know how many of you knew that I had a second grandchild on the way and Miss Lady made her appearance uh, last week and I took a little time off to just be a little hands on in the grandma department with my first grandchild, Ashton. Uh, he is 14 months old and we welcomed his little sister, Amira, to the family. And she was born on September 30th, a little late. She was supposed to be here a little bit earlier than that, but she came fashionably late like any diva would. So I just wanted to share that piece of good news because I'm a proud grandmama, y'all. <laughs> so with all of that being said, let's get into some spooky stuff for the month of October. If you guys are ready to jump right into it, let's go. What's up, shadowy sleuths? Welcome to Sinister Silhouettes, the podcast where we dive headfirst into the darkest corners of the human psyche. I'm Tasha Pierce, your guide through the twisted tapestry of true crime, unsolved mysteries, and paranormal phenomena. Together, we'll unravel these sinister silhouettes, shining a light on the darkness that can reside within the human soul. Please do me the honor of rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Sinister Silhouettes wherever you're listening. Hey there, shadowy sleuths. Welcome back to Sinister Silhouettes. I'm your host, Tasha, and today we're about to embark on a journey one to way back in time to Halloween night in 1957, a night that forever changed the way one community felt about the innocence of trick-or-treating. Picture this. The moon hangs low in the sky, casting eerie shadows on suburban streets, while children excitedly don costumes and grab their candy bags. It's a night filled with laughter, candy, and harmless breaks. But in the heart of Los Angeles, beneath the facade of fun and festivities, a sinister plot is unfolding, one that would become etched in the annals of true crime history. Our story today revolves around Peter Fabiano, an unsuspecting victim, and two women who would forever be known as architects of terror. Their sinister intentions would lead to a chilling and shocking act of violence that left this community in disbelief. But before we dive into the dark details of that fateful night, let's set the stage, learn about the players in this gruesome tale, and unravel the mysteries that surrounded the trick-or-treat murder. Peter Fabiano was a middle-aged man living in Los Angeles in the 1950s. Born in 1910, he was a husband and a father, seemingly leading an ordinary life in a suburban neighborhood of Pacuima. However, beneath the surface, there were underlying tensions and complexities in his life. Fabiano was married to Betty Fabiano, and they had two children from Betty's first marriage. At first glance, they seemed like an average American family. However, Peter was reportedly abusive and controlling, behaviors that were not uncommon for the times. After a career in truck driving, Peter Fabiano became involved in the beauty industry. He owned two successful beauty salons and worked as a beautician, a profession somewhat unconventional for a man at that time. Now, Joan Rabel was an employee of Peter Fabiano. She came looking for work after her own divorce. She soon befriended Betty and became a confidant. During a rough patch in the Fabiano marriage, Betty went to stay with her friend. 
This is when the lines of their friendship became blurred. Their relationship was described as quote-unquote abnormal, 1950s code for lesbian. Now this hasn't been substantiated, nor is it apparent whether the alleged feelings were mutual. Regardless, Betty chose to work on her marriage with Peter, and she eventually went back home. Peter was happy to have her back under one condition. She needed to cut all ties with Joan Rabel. Now, Goldine Pizer was a medical secretary, and she was another of Joan Rabel's close friends and confidants. The two women were not only friends, but also had a deep bond, sharing their frustrations and grievances. During their daily coffee sessions, Goldine became aware of the troubled relationship between Joan and Betty's husband, Peter. Joan convinced her that Betty was in mortal danger with Peter. Joan really pouted all quite heavily. Peter was abusive to Betty and the kids. He was controlling. He was a drug dealer. Goldine believed all of this because why would Joan lie to her? However, as we say around here, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. Soon, based on nothing but words, Goldine would become Joan's accomplice in a nefarious plot against Peter. On that fateful Halloween night, Joan Rabel and Goldine Pizer, driven by their anger and resentment towards Peter Fabiano, disguised themselves as trick-or-treaters and went to his home. But instead of candy, they had a far more sinister plan in mind. As the sun set over the quiet suburban neighborhood of Los Angeles, Halloween festivities were in full swing. Children dressed in costumes roamed the streets, eagerly knocking on doors and collecting candies from their neighbors. It was the epitome of a typical Halloween night filled with laughter and innocent fun. Later, on this seemingly normal Halloween evening, Peter Fabiano and his family closed the house down and prepared for bed. Little did they know that their lives were about to take a horrifying turn. As darkness descended, two figures approached the Fabiano residence. Joan Rabel and her close friend, Goldine Pizer, were dressed in Halloween costumes to disguise their true intentions. They had carefully planned their visit, not for treats, but for a deadly trick. It was after 11 p.m. when two rather large children knocked on the door. Peter Fabiano is better than me because he got out of bed, grabbed the candy bowl, and opened the door, thinking they were just regular trick-or-treaters, even though they were coming a little late. However, instead of candy, they pulled out a gun. In a shocking and tragic turn of events, they shot Peter Fabiano on his own doorstep. Chaos and panic ensued as the two women fled the scene, leaving behind a community in shock and disbelief. Neighbors, including a police officer, were awakened by the gunshot and the commotion. Uh, they rushed to the Fabiano home, called the police. Peter Fabiano was quickly taken to the hospital, but his injuries proved fatal and he succumbed to a gunshot wound. Halloween night, which should have been a celebration of innocence, had become the backdrop for a heinous crime. Joan and Goldine went to great lengths to blend in with the Halloween crowd. They wore costumes that concealed their identities, making it seem like they were simply children out for some Halloween fun. These costumes served as their masks of deception, allowing them to approach Peter Fabiano's home without raising suspicion. To further hide their faces, they donned masks. Although these masks were only 
partially concealing their features. They were kind of like the Robin mask of Batman and Robin Fang. In the dimly lit streets, it would have been challenging for anyone to discern their true identities behind these masks. Now to complete their illusion, Joan and Goldine carried trick-or-treat bags, just like the children in the neighborhood. These bags were not filled with candies, but rather with a sinister intent and that gun that we spoke about just a bit earlier. They knew that using these bags would help them blend in seamlessly with other trick-or-treaters and make their approach to Peter Fabiano's doorstep appear innocent. Their meticulous preparation and the effort they put into their disguises were indicative of the cold and calculated nature of their crime. By successfully masquerading as harmless trick-or-treaters, Joan Rabel and Goldine Pizer gained access to their target, Peter Fabiano, without arising suspicion. Remember, Joan Rabel was persona non grata. Peter would have never opened the door if he suspected that she was on the other side of it. So Joan Rabel and Goldine Pizer had used these Halloween costumes and masks to disguise themselves during the crime. This made it difficult for witnesses to provide detailed descriptions of the suspects. One witness did describe a vehicle speeding away after the gunshot, but they couldn't describe the occupants. And this was a borrowed vehicle anyway. It would not be immediately traced back to Joan or Goldine. The police had little insight into a potential motive behind the murder. Peter Fabiano's family and neighbors were perplexed as to why anyone would want to harm him, as he appeared to be leading a relatively ordinary life. In fact, when the police asked Betty if her husband had any enemies, she could only think of one, Joan Rabel. As far as Goldine and Joan were concerned, the Halloween murder had been a rousing success. When Joan dropped Goldine off to her home late that night, she told her, forget you ever knew me. And it seems apparent that Joan was the mastermind behind the entire plot and that Goldine had been coerced into carrying it out. But for all the meticulous planning, Joan forgot to establish one thing, what to do with the murder weapon. Goldine knew she had to get rid of it, but she didn't know where. So she went to a high-end department store the next day and left it in a locker. This would become their undoing. Police received an anonymous tip that the murder weapon was in a locker at Bullock's flagship store in downtown Los Angeles. They eventually traced that weapon back to Goldine, and she was brought in for questioning. Two weeks after brutally killing Peter Fabiano, Goldine Pizer sat in a police interrogation room and sang. Before you knew it, police had arrested her co-conspirator, but Joan was a tough nut to crack. Remember, this was the 1950s with all its biases. The women were thought to be in an abnormal relationship, and we've already discussed what that means. They had to undergo hours of psychiatric examinations to see if they were too mentally incapacitated to stand trial because of their perceived sexuality. Now, Pizer told one of those doctors, I had no motive personally. Whatever motive I had was to please Joan. I was always easily influenced. I have been impressionable and always trusting. After hearing Pizer's account of the murder, the psychiatrist wrote, the only thought she had was that she saved her friend, Joan Rabel, from an evil person. Once their competency was declared, the trial began, and there were stark differences between the behaviors of the defendant. Goldine was emotional. She cried, 
was conciliatory and showed actual remorse. Joan, on the other hand, had an inscrutable expression switching between a blank look and a sinister grin. During the trial, both women entered pleas of innocence, with Pizer asserting her plea on the grounds of insanity. Emotions ran high in the courtroom as Pizer tearfully recounted the events of the night of the shooting in front of the jury. In contrast, reports indicate that Joan wore a smile as she was escorted in and out of the courtroom that day. The initial charge against both women was first-degree murder, but this was later reduced to second-degree murder as part of a plea deal. Subsequently, the judge delivered a sentence ranging from five years to life in prison. As documented by the LA Times, Goldine Pizer was eventually released and continued to reside in the Los Angeles area. In 1971, she even held a position as an officer within the Miracle Mile chapter of the Professional Women's Club. She passed away at the age of 83 in 1998. On the other hand, Joan Rabel's fate remains elusive after 1957, with scarce information about her post-release life. Betty, the wife of Peter Fabiano, carried on, remarried, and lived a full life until her passing at the age of 81, in 1999. Of course, there are many unanswered questions surrounding this case. The most pressing one is whether or not Betty Fabiano had anything to do with the crime. From what we can glean, Betty was not involved in any way with the planning and execution of her husband's murder. It's possible that she may have confided in Joan Rabel, but it's unclear if she told Joan any of the things that Joan told Goldine. Another question is whether these women were really involved in lesbian relationships. I think the answer to that question is irrelevant. People across the sexual spectrum commit crimes and their alleged homosexuality doesn't make them more or less guilty or innocent. It may provide a definitive motive for the crime, but these women engaging in a relationship shouldn't have ended in Peter Fabiano's death. It's safe to say Joan was very manipulative she had Goldine wrapped around her little finger and any friendship she forged with Goldine was with the intent to use her to get closer to Betty. The question also arises, did the perpetrators of this crime receive a lenient sentence because they are women? Even with the plea agreement, I think they did. Five years to life seems lenient for gunning a man down holding a bowl of candy in his own living room. We know Goldine was released and was doing other things in the community by 1971. Even with her apparent remorse, that really seems soft. Another final question I have about this case, who made the anonymous call to the cops about the gun in the locker at Bullock's? A huge part of me wants to believe it was Goldine herself. In the days after the murder, with no contact from Joan, I think Goldine had an opportunity to think clearly. During the daily coffee dates with Joan, Goldine remained susceptible to being brainwashed by her. And maybe that was another of Joan's big mistakes in this crime. She didn't realize her spell would be broken without those daily indoctrination sessions. And many of the articles I've read on the case say Goldine was relieved when police showed up at her home. So I hope in the midst of so many wrongs, she did do the right thing here. Of course, we'll never know if that is the case with Goldine and Joan. 
So, what did you think of today's somber trip down memory lane? Send feedback to Sinister Silhouettes Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for 18 reviews on Spotify and 69 on Apple Podcasts, but we stand and steal, y'all. Keep those reviews coming. They really help the show find an audience. And before we wrap up this journey into the shadows, remember, the mystery doesn't stop here, fam. If you got a theory, a question, or just want to share your thoughts, don't be shy. Reach out to me on our social medias or via email because this podcast here is all about community. And hey, if you are enjoying these Sinister Silhouettes as much as I'm enjoying bringing them to you, make sure you hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. You will not want to miss a single spine-tingling episode, especially as we head into spooky season. So until next time, Shadowy Sleuths, keep your flashlight handy and your curiosity alive. This is Tasha signing off. Stay sharp, stay sassy, and keep shining a light on those shadows. Be safe out there. Peace. <laughs>